Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 329. This program is dedicated in memory of David Halevi ben Nechama, whose Yotzeit is on the 15th of Cheshvan. We are in the week of Parshas Vayero, the fourth Parsha of the Book of Bereshis. And next Shabbos will also be Chav Cheshvan, the 20th of Cheshvan, the 160th birthday of the Rebbe Rashab, the Rebbe Nishmosi Eden, as the Rebbe would often call him. The fifth Chabad Rebbe. So, as we always begin with something timely, based on the Alter Rebbe's expression, living with the times, and it was explained to mean living with the Parsha that we read in the time, because that Parsha is the energy of this week. So we will begin with that and go into the many, many questions that have been coming in, literally streaming in, <laughs> literally nonstop. And uh, obviously, time allowing, try to address as much as possible, especially relevant to this week, which in many ways is a pretty... Uh, uh, momentous week in the United States due to the elections. But we'll begin with Teda. And from Teda, through the lens of Teda, we look at the world, which allows us to see it from the perspective of the Creator, from God's perspective. Perspective Ashgocha Pratis, Divine Providence, with Hashem's mysterious plan at work which is quite obvious nowadays more than ever due to the pandemic, due to all the other unpredictable, surprising, and even uh, disturbing and disruptive events of our time. So many questions actually came in in connection to this Parshas. This is, of course, the two Parshas, Lech and Vayeda, are the primary story of Avram Avinu, somewhat also extending into Chaisara, the primary story is Lech Lecha and Vayeda. So I think a good way to begin is with this question, a general question. Did the biblical stories of the Ovis actually happen, or are they just metaphors and parables to teach us lessons on how we should behave as Jews? So that's a good way to begin. We know that there are four different levels of interpretation of Torah. Rosh Hashanah, the acronym Pardes, Pshat Remez Drush Sod. So while there is an esoteric and deeper mystical meaning, Sod, and there is a Drush, a Talmudic and homiletic meaning in every verse, in every word, in every letter of Torah. And Remez, an allegorical, metaphorical meaning. But there's also Pshat, and it begins with Pshat. E Mikri Yetzin Bidei Pshute. So every event and every narrative and every character and all the stories we hear in the Torah are not theories, not parables. They have many lessons and layers of lessons, but it begins with Pshat, that yes, there was an Avram and there was a Yitzchak and a Yaakov and a Sarah, Rivka, Rochaleya. That's the way we understand Torah in a traditional fashion. And when you understand its deeper meaning and its lesson to us, 
then you realize that part of that is also that a human being or location existed at a certain time in history when it manifested in a literal way, in that time and space. So Avram Avinu, besides the fact that he is our first forefather, first of the Ovis, and Sarah, first of the Imaus, of the matriarchs, they lived in their time and their stories are actual stories that happened. But above all, their story is really a spiritual story that lives on till this very day. And it's not a contradiction. They go hand in hand. And as such, we can derive lessons from their lives to the Avram and Sarah, so to speak, within each one of us, to the Yitzchak and Rivke within each one of us. And the same with all the other elements and narratives and characters and personalities in the Torah. So that's the short answer. But we need all four dimensions because pshat alone does not necessarily give us the directive all the time. Sometimes the literal story may seem distant and irrelevant to us. That's why we need the deeper and other, the other levels and dimensions of interpretations to help us get the entire picture. To use the expression from the Rameh Mipanoi, who one of the great Kabbalists and commentators, Shalos cites it as well, that the Torah, people think the Torah t- talks about things below and alludes to and hints to things above. No, the Torah begins with a story above, a spiritual story. As I mentioned, the Stakel Barais, the Torah is the blueprint for creation. So it precedes creation. And it deals with all the higher dimensions and levels in the higher worlds, the spiritual worlds. But it's as the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya. But the Torah was given down below to the point that were actually then manifested in actual historical events and personalities and locations and all the story and narrative that the Torah tells us. So true dimension is obviously its divine nature. But that divine nature then turns into what we call the biblical narrative and story. And this also explains why the Torah is interestingly, if it was just a history book, and just telling us that, just the technical story, it would seem to be completely inadequate. Think of Avramovina. Avramovina's life, we only know about his birth and the beginning, very rarely in a verse or two. The main story of Avram begins last week's chapter when he's 75 years old. 75 years is, we don't know anything in Torah Shebiksav, in the written Torah. When you think about Yitzchak, you hear obviously also aspects of their lives. But who is the Torah speak about most of the three of us? Yaakov. Starting from Parsha Teldes, Vayetze, Vayishlach, Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash, Vayechi. Seven chapters. And, and we know that Yaakov lived only 147 years compared to the 180 years of Yitzchak and the 175 years of Avram. So seven chapters for Yaakov. Two and a half or three chapters for Avram. Yitzchak okay, begins in Vayera, Chaisara, Chaisara, Teldes, Vayetze, Teldes. Three, four chapters. So it would seem completely disproportionate. Then if you think further in the Torah, when we finish Sefer Breshis, we come to Sefer Shmeis, the whole story after they leave Mitzrayim, which is the middle of Pasha Boy, covers only 40 years. The whole Sefer Ayosha, Sefer Breshis, covers almost 2,000 years. So you see from that, it's very clear that the Torah is a deeper story than just history book and stories, as the, as the Zayar says.
But at the same time, that which is literal is also literal. So this is a good introduction overall, and this will lead us into the discussion that we're going to be talking about now in Pasha Vayera itself. So here's a question that came in, which I think is also a good segue in connection to Chav Cheshven, because Chav Cheshven is also related to a story in Pasha Vayera, the Rebbe Rashab was born in that week, Pasha Vayera, as it will be this year. Shab is Pasha Vayera, it's Chav Cheshven. So here's the, the questions that, that were asked. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, after reading Pasha Lech Lecha, I have a few questions. I hope you won't, have to wait. We don't, uh, you won't have to wait until next year to answer them. Why is a big deal made of Hashem appearing to Avram at the beginning of Pasha Vayera? For example, we know that Ebed Hashab's question when he was a child, which I'll tell him in a moment. When Hashem already appeared to him in Pasha Lech Lecha, Question number two. Similarly, why is a big deal made about the three malachim delivering the news to Avram and Sarah about the upcoming birth of their child in Pasha's Vieta when this was already promised to Avram at the end of Pasha Lechlocha? And number three, why is Avram identified as the first Jew due to him recognizing the Creator at a young age when there were many in previous generations who recognized and communicated with God? For example, Adam, Cain, Chanoich, Noyach, Malkitzedek, etc. Thank you in advance, and thank you for your inspiring broadcasts every week. So I thought an appropriate question, being that it relates to a story with the Rebbe Rashab, which only intensifies the question that this individual is asking. The Rebbe Rashab, when he was four or five years old, um, is it four or five or five, six years old, he went in to the Tzemach Tzedek. Remember, the Tzemach Tzedek was Nestalik and Tov Reish Chavov. That would be five years, four or five years old, five years after the Rebbe Rashab was born in Tafresh Chof Aleph. Okay, which is the equivalent of 1861. So he was four or five years old. He went in for a bracha, for a blessing for his birthday. Little boy goes in. He comes in, he starts crying. Tzemach Tzedek said, why are you crying? He says, I just learned by Yedah, a love Hashem, that Hashem appeared to Avram Avinu. And why doesn't he appear to me? The little boy cried. Samach Tzadik responded, when a Jew, some say the Girs is a Jew at Tzadik, to 99 years old decides to circumcise himself, which is at the end of Pasha Lech Lecha, as God commands him, he's worthy that God repairs to him. This story that Rebbe repeated almost every year in relation to Chav Cheshvan and Vayera, with many lessons from both the question and the answer that Samach Tzadik gives. But what we want to address here is this question. You look in Pasha Lachlacha, it says clearly Hashem appeared to Avram Avinu. So it's not the first time he appeared. The fact that the Rebbe Rashab is crying this time, he also learned Pasha Lachlacha. What happened here that we don't have before? What's the difference? Why is this a major revelation? As I just read in the question. So it all comes together. Indeed, this question is asked by commentaries and by the Medrash Rabbim right at the beginning of Pasha Vayera and in Zoyahar and Pasha Lech Lecha and Vayera. And furthermore, the Rebbe actually has a sikh explaining it. In the Kutis Sikh is Chelik Yud, volume 10, the Sikha on Vayera, page 50 and on. The Rebbe discusses it and cites the Zayar. Says the Zayar briefly, 
that the expression used in Pasha Lech Lecha was Mechze, that God appeared in a vision, and the word comes from the word, a word in Targum. Chizoyim. Here, he's revealed with the word Vayera, which is a higher level of revelation. So he had revelation, but it was more sometimes compared, as the Rebbe explains it, when you say the difference between Moshe Rabbeinu and the other prophets, Moshe saw B'zeh. He was able to point when he had a vision. His prophecy was direct. And all the other Nevi'im, Snavim B'koit, they prophesized koit like. They saw an image of it, not the exact direct, more of a reflection than the direct view of it. So similarly, Avram Avinu went through two stages. And be, what changed? The change was the bris milah. Because he was Makai Mitzvah bris, as the Atzimach Sadek answers the Rebbe Rashab, therefore now he reached a higher level of revelation, of a, almost a direct experience of the divine. Not through a reflection, and not through a, a, a moshal, an example, or a metaphor, or a levush, a garment, in the language of Chassidus. So that's the key difference. From this we could also derive... Regarding the other matters, the second question that you ask, the three malachim. Yes, Avram Avinu heard that he will have a child and he will have a nation, a great nation that will be like the stars in the sky. Yet the bris made Avram Avinu and Tatomin. His name was also changed to Avraham. So it's a whole new level. Now the malachim come, now it's coming into a reality that wasn't there before. Why was the bris so vital? Because bris is it wasn't just Avram Avinu's own effort in connecting to God, which was his work till that point. Here God commands him, in your flesh, let us make a covenant, my covenant, that the material world, and this would be the only example before Matan Teda, before Sinai, where the material world itself was transformed to become connected to the divine. And that changed everything. Up till that point, Avram Avinu's work was primarily spiritual. As we know, there was the gzeda, the breach, the schism between Elyenim and Tachtenim. You could not spiritualize the material world. And the work of the Aveda was Atshedesh HaNivroim, which means, in the language of Chassidus, you could only transform the world basically according to the pipelines and the structure which God created, basically bringing it back to the way it was before the, the eating of the tree of knowledge. But not higher than Sheresh and Avraim, not to levels of transcendence that are so-called higher than the divine energy manifest in existence and creation. Bris was the one example. Now, in general, the Ovis continued to do that work. It was not till Sinai, till Matan Teda, when the whole world was ready for that type of higher revelation. But there's a taste of it. Avram begins the process with Bris. So Vayera is the first revelation that comes after the Bris, and the events that would follow all now have a different meaning and a different level of experience. Okay. Regarding the third question you asked, the first Rudutin, there were others. I'm going to address that more in the Chassidus question at the end of this program. But I do want to refer you to episode 244, where I've discussed it as well, which is a good opportunity to announce that we have chassidusapplied.com as the website for all things Chassidus Applied related. All these programs are archived there. There is a forum where you can submit an anonymous question, as well as other resources on Chassidus, 
including classes on Ayin Beis and Samach Vov, which of course are the two major discourses, the major magnum opuses of the Rebbe Rashab, Valye Meledes of Chav Cheshven, as well as the essays, six years of essays, thousands and thousands of submissions, people applying chassidus to contemporary life issues. So check it out at chassidusapplied.com. So, with that, and as I said, we'll talk more about it at the end of this program, we talk more about Avram Avinu's actual, what his being chidush was. Even though before him there were those that also revealed the divine, there were tzaddikim, there was Noyach mentioned, Odaman, Malkit Tzaddik, etc. Shame. Okay, but here's another question in this context, <laughs> which uh, a little uh, like tongue-in-cheek, but it's good to talk about. How old was Avram when he did Lech Lecha and moved out of his parents' home? Wasn't he 75 years old? So why at age 27 are my parents telling me to move out of their basement and get a job, and they won't accept my argument that Avram was a senior citizen when he finally moved out? Okay, I understand this to be somewhat of a humorous request question, but since it was asked, everything's Ashgacha Pratis. So first of all, we understand Avram Avinu didn't necessarily live in the basement of Terach and his mother. Avram Avinu had moved out and had built a family, began building a family. It wasn't a family yet. He began building his life. Lech Lecha is a lesson that goes far beyond Avram Avinu being connected. He had already forsaken and completely abandoned the idolatry of Terach and of the pagan world in which he grew up. So he had that lechla long before 27 years old as well. Some say at age three he already recognized God. So living in your parents' home at the age 27, yes, it's time to begin not to live still under your mother and father's watch. You need to become an independent individual. And I'll just share a yechidah that Rebbe, when someone was looking for a shidduch, he was already 28, 29 years old. He was by the Rebbe in yechidah. And he said to the Rebbe that he wants a bracha. So the Rebbe asked him, told the Rebbe how old he was. The Rebbe said to him, where do you live? He says, I live at home. He says, you, with your parents, yeah. He says, you get along with them? He says, yeah, it's beautiful. My mother takes care, she does my laundry, she, 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 I eat meals with them. So the Rebbe said, you, have no, you don't have any disagreements? So of course he wanted to impress the Rebbe. He said, no. The Rebbe said, it's not a good sign for an adult to not have any different of opinions. I'm not saying it has to be an argument. But any different opinions, my suggestion is you should move out of the house. Carry your own responsibility. And that's what he did. And a little while later, he got engaged. Because in a sense, he was still holding on and the umbilical cord too much. There's a time for everything. There's a time when children need to be at home. There's a time lech lecha. So no, I would not suggest wait till 75 years old, as you alone understand. But since you brought it up, I might as well have just, I wanted to address it as well. Okay. Going back to, uh, indeed, uh, Avram Avinu, another question. How do we reconcile that Avram Avinu did the commandments of God with Zerizus? So Zerizus, Magdim, Lemitzvus, we do everything with Zerizus, and Avram Avinu we know. Zerizus, that's what it says in Nagera Sakeja Simen Chafalov, that the main quality of Avram when he did the Akeda in this week's Pasha was that he did it with Zerizus, by Yochim Avram Babeker. Talking about Avram Babeke, that he woke up right in the morning, he didn't delay. So how do we reconcile that, that when it came to doing a bris, he waited 99 years? Why, why did he wait? The answer is quite obvious. 
because the Dua Briz needs a Tzivu Hashem. The whole point of the Briz was God commanded him to do so. It's not something he'd come up with on his own. So even though Kaim Kol HaTeda, Kedim Shanitna, he performed the entire Teda before it was given, but it was all primarily spiritual. Briz was a mitzvah that had to come from Hashem. Why did Hashem choose at 99? Because he needed to prepare himself to be a Tomim. He had to go through all the stages of his work of preparing himself. And then God said to him, now you're ready for that leap. And when he did that, Hashem reveals himself. Which brings us back to the story of the Rebbe Rashab on his birthday, fourth or fifth birthday, went into the Tzemach Tzedek, the question and the answer, which by explaining the concept of what a bris is, we can understand the story in a deeper way. The Rebbe Rashab went on to revolutionize Chassidus. Within Chassidus Chabad itself, which was a revolution, a new stage began. Many different elements to it, but two cornerstones was one, the establishment of Yeshiva's Temchet Mimim, Lubavitch, and Tofresh Nun Zayin, 1897. And the way he developed Chassidus to a completely new level. In the words of Chassidim, as the Friedrich Rebbe cites, the Rambam of Chassidus. Not only did he organize and codify all the sugyas, all the themes and concepts, but added and developed the profundity of it in ways that were unprecedented till that point. The whole purpose of Chassidus, of Teda in general, and Chassidus in particular, is Gilea Lekus in this world, by Yera, to see godliness. Mashiach comes and the Gula comes, will be Niglik Feid Hashem, that all call Basar Yachdav. We'll all see godliness, even the flesh itself, Basar, flesh. Brisi Bipsarche. Chassidus particular, which teaches us about God, Da'asa to understand God, understand God's way, a mechanism of creation, creating a relationship with the divine, is what Chassidus is. The Rebbe Rashab, especially in the two magnum opuses of his Chassidus, Hemshech Tofresh Samachvov and Hemshech Chaim Beis, does exactly that. The Rebbe Rashab was born on Chav Cheshvin 160 years ago in the year Kisra. Tofresh Chofalov is Keser. Chof Cheshvin, Chof is Keser. Kisra is Keser, as the Rebbe explains in the Sikha of Shabbos Pasha Vayera, Chof Cheshvin, the Tof Shem Mem Zayin. And therefore, on his birthday, what is Keser, which is the interface between the divine and existence, as the, as the Rebbe Rashab elaborates, the whole Hemshech Chaim Beis is about Keser, beginning with B'Shor Shikdum Yisrael Nasr Nishma, and they bound three Ksarim for them, and the whole theme, Keser is interface. So this boy, this little boy, the Rebbe Rashab, on his birthday, is going into the Tzidat Tzamech Sadek, he's crying for Gilead of course, for Vayera, which would be, the, which is the central theme of Chassidus and would be the central theme of the Rebbe Rashab's Chassidus. And what does the Tzamech Sadek answer him when I eat that Tzadik? 
to 99 years make, makes a decision. He's worthy. This gave Anasinus Keach the strength and the directive and direction to the Rebbe Rashab to go on to build Timchit Mimim. Not just as he writes in Kuntz HaSachem, not just to learn Teirah. It's not a just learning Teirah is a tremendous thing, but there were other yeshivas. But to take the Teirah, Nigla the Teirah, Primisat Teirah, with Havedas HaGdom Avdeidas HaTfila, and Kima Mitzvah's Behidr, to take it and turn it into a tool, a tool of transformation of the entire world, to bring the Geula. Kol HaYetzel Mechemes Beis David, in a famous Sikh in Tofri Samachal, the Rebbe Rashab said, those that go out to Mechemes Beis David, the spiritual war, to bring God to the world, to bring Mashiach to the world. Kesev get krisis le'ishte. They write a get krisis. This doesn't mean literally. In halacha it means literally, because they don't want to leave their wives and aguna. But spiritually it means to cut themselves off from everything that is material and krisis bris. And make a bris with the eibrishter. Bris b'psarchem, that they're very flesh. A covenant to serve God in fulfilling this vital mission. Technically it means together with your wife, together with family, to always remain atomim from temchit mimim, which is a nitzchizdik thing, to be a shliach of the eibishter, to bring the geula, to bring a lakus to this world, so at the youngest age, it was already the beginnings, the seeds were being planted of this Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab, Keser, Kisra, Kav Cheshven, to create this interface, which in turn would lay the ground for the Friedrich Rebbe's work and the Rebbe's work, sending Shluchim all over the world to indeed finish this mission. One more question came in about um, Pashas Vayero, which is about Leit's wife. How do we know that Leit's wife turned into a pillar of salt? Wouldn't anyone who turned around to see what happens to Leit's wife also be turned into a pillar of salt? So how do we know? Well, the Torah, we know the events of the Torah, not necessarily from eyewitnesses. We know it because the Ebershter told it to Moshe and it was all written down. So yes, even if no one turned around, and likely no one did, but the Ebershter knew that she turned into a pillar of salt. So when it's documented, it's documented. The same with the so many different events. It's not necessarily the people that experienced it that told it to their children. That also may be the case if they knew about it, but primarily because Hashem said it to Moshe Rabbeinu. And uh, that's how we know these events. A Balabadasha answer. Okay. We move now on to another topic. Though, as I mentioned at the outset, Istakal Baraisa Bar Alma, we look at everything through the lens of Torah. And therefore the world, Havli Elam Hazar, which means the nonsense of this world, is we're here to make a dira betachtenim, but that should not be our primary preoccupation. And yet Hashgoch Pratis is a factor. We live in lands, and we live in a land with laws and rules. And this week is election week. On Tuesday, the election of the President of the United States and other leaders of this, of this, uh, of this country. So, this too we need to look at through the eyes of Teda. Some people's minds, especially this election has been hyped and maybe nastier than ever before. People are very consumed with it. There's a lot of anxiety and stress. 
So I want to address that. I spoke about it last week. From a Torah point of view, from a Chassidisha point of view, we have to look at everything as what is this as an opportunity toward bringing godliness to the world. Parisi b'psarchem. Ayera hulav Hashem. And uh, especially when something like this monumental happens, it's going to affect people. But at the same time, we have to remember. We have to remember that it's God that runs the world. So though we have to do our part in electing someone that b'derechateva makes most sense, but we have to always remember that Hashem is running the world. And with that, there should be a certain calm, and that should be our driving force. So a few questions that were asked. Let's begin with this one. What is the Rebbe's view on preserving the USA? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, we know that America is in a great danger of stopping to exist as we know it. With socialism, identity politics, grievance and victimization rampant in our country, political pundits talk about voting, campaigning, etc. But being that the Rebbe always saw far beyond everyone else, what would he say is the best practical way to save the United States. Thanks. Well, this is an assumption that uh, that the United States needs saving or preserving. You're entitled to your opinion, but not necessarily is that the case. From the Rebbe's point of view, as he made clear in Shabbos Parsha B'Shalach Tov Shemem, that in many ways this country is divinely ordained. What does that mean? Men founded this country, the founding fathers, but they were inspired. They were inspired by the principles, the universal divine principles, and established a country that are based on that. The essential human rights of a human being created in the divine image. As the Rebbe communicates with several presidents, that the foundations of this country are based on the Ten Commandments, on the universal Sheva Mitzvah B'nai Neach, seven Noahide laws, which is the essence of every healthy civilization. All people are created equal, and by and by, that, and by that birthright, endowed by the Creator with unalienable rights. As long as this country follows that foundation, that, that preserves it. That's its foundation. Tampering with that, of course, would be f- fatal. And that's why by the Rebbe, every election, every president, and every aspect of government, it was always about upholding those principles. So I would not say we have to save. It's true there's a lot of hype. I do not believe that this country is either going to completely be destroyed or completely be saved. Let's be a little more nuanced, a little more gray area. Human beings, leaders, the leaders of this country are human beings, flawed, not jaded, in many different ways you can describe them. But the bottom line is this country has gone through many ups and downs and different types of presidents. So as long as those principles are in place, and they are, we need to keep doing everything possible to uphold them. And yes, elect officials that uphold those principles as much as possible. Next question. Government without God. Hi, Rabbi. I watched your video about government without God. In the USA, the government is established to protect the God-given rights we have that precede government. So while I don't disagree with your video, you could have made the stronger point that government is only there to protect rights given by God. I believe I did that, but point well taken. And I, uh, I, um, I agree with what you're saying. 
for those that want to know government without God, go to meaningfullife.com and you'll see the different programs we do. We do. And I did one of these programs in the last weeks. Obviously, we've been talking about elections and government, all, again, from the perspective of Teirach. So let's talk now talk about the election itself. Of course, it's inevitable to get a question, who should we vote for? Should we vote for Trump or Biden? So besides the fact that as a nonprofit organization, we are not allowed to endorse anyone. Yeah, that's true. Uh, at the same time, even if we were, I don't believe I would. Everyone has to make their personal decision. Yes, I did go vote already, early voting. Um, and I don't believe in endorsing for another reason, because we endorse God. We endorse Taylor. I say we, they don't need our endorsement, but I mean to say that's what we advance. That's our cause. Candidates are humans. We have to apply, and this is, I will discuss, the principles that each of us can decide. So let me frame it a bit. From our point of view, when I say our, I mean from a Torah point of view, you want to make sure that the leaders you elect are most aligned with the principles of Torah. Not get caught up with other people's hype. Let us not be shaped by the, all the hysteria on either side of the aisle. The media should not be determining who we elect to vote for. You should be determining. And how do you determine? Start with yourself. What are your principles? What are your values? What are your family's values? What is the bigger mission of your life? You'll notice that mostly, most presidents don't really change that at all. Your mission will continue. Your family will continue. It's all up to you. But still, there are certain things, principles, that are more aligned with the vision of what Taylor wants of us. And I don't mean individually. I mean the policies. Many people have an issue with the personality of President Trump, but they like his policies. If they didn't like his policies and his personality, obviously don't vote for him. But policies matter. So though I said last week that the Rebbe's main focus was the policies around education, around a God, around rights that people have, yet that does not mean that obviously events happening in the Middle East, peace in the Middle East, in Israel, of course matter. So that's a factor that has to be weighed in. I'm not going to say one is the, uh, the angel and one is a devil. It's not that way. Sit down and weigh it, but weigh it without influence of others around us. You may discover that you don't even really know who is the best one to uh, vote for. So you have to make a decision as an adult. Talk to your spouse, talk to your mashpia, and figure it out. Those are some of the principles that we should look at at what matters to the future of this country. Many say that Mr. Biden, all he is is an anti-Trump. In other words, it's not about his policies. His policies, people feel are very are concerned with his policies, especially who's going to control the Democratic Party. That may be the case. So then the question is, is it about Trump's personality that we're going to determine, or is there more going on? I'm of the belief that policies are more important than personality because if you go to personality, I don't know their personalities. JFK was once lauded as Camelot. Then he was, he was assassinated, so he became like um, a martyr. But then you hear about of his private life today, which at the time the media did not probe like they do today. And it wasn't exactly, exactly <laughs> uh, some angel. And the same with other presidents. Other presidents that seem to be uh, openly 
perhaps a little rough at the edges, ended up being extremely virtuous and so on. So personality is not the issue here as much as the policies. Obviously, you want to have a role model, an example. So I don't know if you're going to find that in Washington altogether. Many people argue that Trump was about disruption, disrupting Alma de Shikra, the false world, especially epitomized by Washington. And sometimes you need Shekhar to disrupt Shekhar. Disruption may be a good thing, and maybe that should continue. Obviously, COVID-19 has come into play, but here again, a lot of media, you can't even know whom to believe, how numbers are determined. Obviously, we all understand this caution. Would anyone have done better than Mr. Trump? I don't believe so. It was caught everybody by surprise. The beginning, they didn't know what to do exactly. Now it's more under control. That doesn't mean the virus is gone. So I think there, too, there's a lot. I don't know if there's much difference between the candidates. I don't think that's a factor, frankly. COVID is a reality. Yes, the sitting president obviously will take the brunt of the, the, the blame, but is that fair? I don't believe so. So it really has to be, I believe, on other issues as well. Now, of course, there's economics. There's the, the lockdown issue. The other things that are being brought up, but again, there's a lot of smoke. You have to focus on, keep the eyes on the ball of what the mission of this country is, what the mission of our lives are, and see who most likely will advance that. Okay. I did speak about elections in episodes 136 and 137 and 321, which you can find at chassidahsupply.com. Should it be a chil Hashem for someone to publicize that they are voting for Trump? Would it be? I'm sorry. Would it be a chil Hashem for someone to publicize that they are voting for Trump? In today's fragile political climate, would it be a chil Hashem for someone to publicize that they are voting for Trump? Lest it, God forbid, inspires the Antifa radical left to attack Jews. By the way, voting booths have a curtain for a reason. Why can't people just vote quietly without shouting from rooftops? The mere question, to me, is a tragedy. What does that mean? Is this a country you can vote whoever you want to vote for? Vote your conscience. That there should be an intimidation. That you should not be able to tell people. Someone say, some say the polls are all off like they were four years ago because people don't want to admit that they're voting for Trump because they'll be harassed, they'll be labeled. That's a country? That's a democracy? You may not like what someone else is doing, but why don't we just honor that? So the mere question is disturbing, and I can tell you there are quite a few people voting for President Trump to be reelected, precisely not because they like Trump so much, but they don't like the silencing and the intimidation of the other side. It doesn't bode well for a country if you don't agree with me. When you hear that the managing editor of the New York Times four years ago determined to wage war against Trump and said that journalistic objectivity has to be put aside because we have a civic duty to bring him down, the New York Times, that what journalism has come to? Let's say you feel that way, but who... So then you're not an objective journalist. Is that a way to behave? Who gave you the right to determine what is the civic duty or not? Isn't that the whole purpose of elections? What, are you smarter than all the people in this country? By all means, campaign, advance a cause, but be objective and let people make a decision. Once you have people taking the law in their own hands and deciding what they are God, essentially godlessness leads to that, then you have trouble. And there are many people I know that will vote for Trump just because of that itself, regardless of everything else. So, one more, any other questions regarding, yes, one more. Can we vote in a church building? 
Are polling places to vote is inside a church building? Are we allowed to go inside a church to vote? Obviously, it's only to vote and not to worship or sanction Avedah Zara. Okay. So the rabbis in Crown Heights, uh, Rabbi Bruin, came out and said yes with his reasoning. And if he's your rabbi, you should follow your rabbi. There are perhaps others that have different opinions. So you have to go to your rav. This forum, this platform is not the platform for Pasuken Halachas, but since the question was asked, so I'm directing you where to go, and there has been already a psak on this matter. So go to your trusting Rav, an authority that can tell you the answer to that. Okay, many more questions came in on this topic, but we'll, plenty, we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about this next week, another week after the election. We'll see what happens. The anxiety and stress that's consuming this nation is testimony to the fact that we are, in a sense, enslaved by events around us by the media, by the campaigns, by the advertising, by all that's going around. When indeed we have to always remember that Ebrister feared the Welt. Yes, he wants us to do what we need to do, but that Ebrister feared the Welt. The heart of kings and ministers is in the hands of God. On Rosh Hashanah, we said that on Rosh Hashanah has determined the destiny of nations. When you know that, there's a certain inner calm. God runs the world. God runs the show. If we needed a reminder, we got one a rude reminder with COVID-19. With all our plans and our schedules and summer plans and winter plans, school, business, you name it, every sector, entertainment, we see it's all been disrupted. And yet when you hold on to understanding that and you see, look, we do live in a world that's far, far better world, especially for the Jewish people in this country. Based on those fundamental divine principles, a country that has been a malchus shal chesed, in Rebbe's words. So we have to keep that in mind. Again, we need to do what we need to do. But it has to be belay level lev, as explained in Chesidus about Parnas. With your heart, but not with your complete heart. Your head always has to remain above. When you're tied above, you don't fall below. That has to be the attitude. With that type of approach, you can ride through anything. Yeah, we have our preferences. But don't get defined and caught up in everybody else's issues. Especially much of it, which has nothing to do with reality. That's the critical point. And the Ebrister will lead, help us and will lead this world to the Gula Mitis Vashlema. We have to be focused. What can we do? How can we use all these events? And turn it into vehicles for bringing God's message to the world, the message of Teda and Chsidis. Prepare the world for Mola Oretzdeya Es Hashem Kemayim Layom Echasim. When then there'll be no more evil and no more destruction. So, let's make a short break, and we go now to a topic far more personal and in many ways uh, painful. A topic which I'd rather not speak about it, but it's extremely relevant, and that's why I'm on it. More people than we know are struggling with this issue of online addiction. So we've been talking about this for quite a few weeks with some breaks. I spoke about it last week, and I also referred to the previous episodes. So see this as a complementing what we have been discussing until now. 
and taking it further. More and more questions come in, comments. And uh, let me begin with resources. Two main resources that I suggest anyone access, guardyoureyes.com and sanon.org. In addition, you can go to neshamas.org, amudim.org. They have hotlines, there's anonymous hotlines that you can access and reach out to. So, dear Rabbi Jacobson, I've been watching your My Life Chassidus applied with keen interest for a couple of years and, th- and thought of something that may help those suffering with internet addiction. Many of those actors and actresses that they are watching are sadly trapped in the human trafficking business. Many of these people, while looking normal, are actually being filmed under duress. They may have signed an agreement in hopes of better life, of a better life, but at this point are basically slaves. When viewers realize this, it often helps turn away, turn them away from this behavior. Thank you. Okay. We've been speaking, the angle, it began this discussion this, at this point about spouses dealing with their husbands who are addicted, online addiction, and how to deal with it. But obviously the issue is also regarding people themselves who are dealing with this problem, including Bochrim, singles. So I'm transitioning to the topic itself even though obviously it overlaps because there I was addressing more how to deal with it if your spouse has this issue. So those are addressed in previous episodes. And again, go to chassidusapplied.com and you can access those archives. Here. This is being written by a bacher who's addicted to inappropriate sites and scared to tell his parents and ask for a filter. If one is a bacher who's addicted to online inappropriate sites and you and I'm and is, is too scared to reveal this addiction and is therefore frightened to ask his parents to make a filter what should he do please answer as soon as possible because this is something I'm struggling with as well as many others thank you the first step in every situation for awareness and awareness means you acknowledge it and you speak to someone not parents necessarily, not relatives. You have to find them. must be a trusted person to speak to someone. Because like any negative thing, any infection, physical infection, if you ignore it or deny it, it begins to fester. Every infection needs fresh air. What's the fresh air in this context? To speak. If not, it begins to implode and tie you up in knots. And many other problems begin to happen besides the initial biggest problem of the addiction. Find someone to speak to. That doesn't necessarily going to solve the problem overnight, but it begins bringing in some healthy attitude, an objective perspective, and accountability. If you can't find anyone to speak to, many people say, I can't find anyone I can trust. So I gave earlier some websites that you can reach, neshamas.org, amudim.org. I mentioned guardyoureyes.com, sanon.org where you can find anonymous hotlines to call and begin the process. Do not let it sit. Don't ignore it. Don't push it away. Address it. Then there's obviously many other things you can do, but without that support, it becomes very difficult. A person cannot, in fetters, tied up, someone in a pit cannot pull themselves out. 
what you specifically can do, you can look at these sites. I've spoken about it as well in previous episodes, so just follow the, the arrow to the different episodes I spoke about last week. I'll just give you quickly the episodes when I did speak. Episode 34, 132, 209, 256, 258, 260, 320, 324 through 326, 327, and, and now 329, this episode. Another question in this, in this topic. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Thanks for your podcast. I've been listening every week for four years. The past two weeks, you have spoke about women whose, husband, whose husbands are struggling with, with porn. Just want to say I'm having challenges with the dark side of the internet myself. I'm married with four beautiful children. I don't think my wife does not know about my challenges in this area. I've reached out to guard your eyes. They have helped me a lot. I would say any man struggling with these challenges should reach out. Till two years ago, I had a filter on my phone and my wife's phone, so I was not really able to watch, though the urge was there. Two years ago, I got a new job that required me to have my work email on my phone, and due to security from the work email, it won't allow a filter. This is when I started falling. A few months ago, I purchased, I purchased a second phone just for work that I keep in the car and install the filter on my main personal phone. This works for me because my urge is normally at night after everyone goes to bed. Filters slow down your phone and, annoy, and are annoying and pricey, but I know the flip side is worse. When I travel for work is when I find it most challenging because I come into the hotel at 7 p.m. and I have a full night ahead without my family responsibilities. I was matched up with a partner from GYE who I'm in touch with before I go away. I put $100 aside and I tell him if I fall during my trip, then the money is being put in the pushka. And also I take sleeping pills when I'm at the hotel because my desire is so strong, often I can't sleep. Two things I want to say. The internet is a very powerful, amazing, good, very powerful tool. Amazing good can be done with it, but also it can be very damaging. I feel that everyone must have some sort of filter on their phone. I personally know someone whose marriage was destroyed because of this addiction. Just to bring out how strong the urge can be, several years ago when my in-laws were, my, were by my in-laws for Pesach, and I, we were by my in-laws for Pesach, and I came home right after Pesach while the rest of the family stayed for an extra week. When I came home, I, the urge was so strong, I factory reset my computer to get rid of the filter, losing almost everything on the computer. So you see here, these are the painful, heart-wrenching letters that I read with, with a lot of pain, feel for you. But this is, real, this is real life going on today. It's very dark in many ways, but there's also plenty of light. We have a neshama, we have the strength, the blessings that God gives us to be able to deal with any issue. And that's exactly why I want to address it. I remember when we first started speaking about other painful matters. It wasn't easy to talk about, but talking about it like the Friedrich Rebbe says, It's difficult to speak, but it's more difficult to be silent about such matters, because I do know, I've seen with my own eyes, the impact of speaking, making less stigma, people realizing they're not alone in this issue, there are others. And I've seen people in recovery, truly in recovery, that are not gravitating back. It doesn't mean it's not a challenge. So there's real hope. Do not give up. Reach out. 
Don't ever think you're alone and you're the worst scenario, you're the damaged goods and impossible. It's not correct. It's part of the Yetzirah, as the Rebbe brings very often from Tanya, convincing you to remain depressed, which only feeds the addiction and it becomes a vicious cycle. So reach out in every possible way. Okay. Let me see here. I want to read one more. I'll read one more and then we will move on. Just give me, I'm organizing my papers here. Okay. One more, one more uh, person writes, and then we'll uh, move to the next subject. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I've been listening on and off to your program for many years now, and I've often debated whether or not to send in a question. It seemed to me that almost everything that has, has already been addressed, to some extent or another, I, my own comment, I also used to think that, but life is life, and life brings many, many issues and you can never imagine, just as there are 8 billion people on this planet, there are 8 billion and more issues. Some overlap, but going back to your uh, writing. However, something in your latest episode, 3324, what should I do about my husband's addiction to inappropriate online content, made me feel compelled to speak up. Namely, the headline topic and the pained words of this suffering yet incredible wife. I am an Elter Bocher an older Bachel student that has been struggling, and I do truly mean struggling, with an intense addiction to said inappropriate content for well over a decade now. For well over a decade now, and I have tried many different ways, joined many different support groups, spoke to therapists, and so on, to no avail. What else is new? I'm sure you receive many such letters all the time. I have, for the most part, despaired of ever breaking this, and as such, I do not intend to ever marry. After all, how could I possibly marry when it's so painfully obvious what harm this would cause to my wife and likely to the marriage itself? Do I even have a right to get married in the first place? In fact, it seems to me to be the same sort of illness that requires disclosure to your future spouse before you propose. I will not pretend that this decision hasn't led my mind to dark places, but ultimately I am convinced that given the circumstances, this is the correct course of action, and I cannot harm others through my own inability to not harm myself. It is, distressing, it is distressing each time I hear such a story, how predictable it is that marriage will not solve the addiction, and how deeply this wounds, these wounds, this wounds the, their better half when they do ultimately find out. Indeed, if there's one thing to see here and here, it is the truth, or what the Rebbe Rashab warns, the truth will always out. Why am I even writing all this if I'm already convinced that I don't even have any real que- and I don't really have any real question for you? Truthfully, I'm not sure that there is a question. It's, simple, it's a simple observation and plea for those suffering from this to realize not the harm of it directly. They already know that, but the damage is still inevitable, caused, uh, inevitable cause to their wives, but the damage it will inevitable cause to their wives and children. Perhaps I hope somewhere deep inside that you will believe and convince me that this too is not farfal, is not farfal. Perhaps the question is whether any person with such an addiction has a right to marry until it is under control and they have told their intended what they are up against. Trust, respect, and closeness are the foundation to a stable long-term relationship with a level of intimacy present in marriage. Whilst one is in the state induced by this sort of problem, we are discussing while one is in the state 
is in the state induced by this sort of by the sort of problem we are discussing, this seems impossible. This note is primarily intended for your own eyes, but if you feel that it is worth noting and remarking on publicly, please do so to the best of your ability. All the best. Well, I read it pretty much as it was written because unfortunately this can be written by at least hundreds of people that I personally know. So it doesn't expose anything, confidentiality. Let me just respond to you and anyone who else has such feelings directly. The mere fact that you write this way, even though it's extremely painful to read, I actually find deep respect for you. The integrity, your honesty, your candidness, your openness, is actually the ingredients for the best type of relationship. You've written yourself off feeling that your addiction is stronger than your soul. You daven every morning, you say, The soul you have given me, God, is pure. Do you believe that? It's pure. It remains pure, no matter what. Which means your purity is stronger than any toxins or any pollution. Which also means the fact that it's affected you to the point that you feel you're hopeless and you cannot marry tells me that the pollution has controlled now your mind and your heart and that neshama tehedi, that spark, that neshama that's pure, you basically put aside or leave it buried. If God means anything, if a neshama means anything, it means that when we're dealing with challenges, we have the power to overcome any challenge. Frankly, if, that is not, if one does not believe that, what, what, what role does God have in our lives? When things are going well, And this is not only addiction. It's everything. We live in a world, it's a dark world. Alter Rebbe says, You think an Hashem wants to come? A pure soul wants to come to this world? The whole world is polluted. Not just this addiction. The potential for all types of addiction and other things. But that's exactly the kavana. When the Maraglim said, we don't want to go into Israel, what was the grave sin? Not that there are challenges that they came to a conclusion that we can't do it. There's no such thing we can't do it. If I was able to be in your presence, I would embrace you and tell you you can do anything you set your mind to do. But not alone. You need someone to speak to. You need to work on it. I hear you that you've gone to groups and so on, which I commend you for. But no, there's no giving up. You need to get married. Not to solve this problem. Because you're a great person. You have much to give. So you can bring much to this to a relationship. About sharing it or not sharing, that's an individual case-by-case discussion, depending where you are, whether you have a control over it or not. Obviously, you never want to das, go into a situation and later a wife finds out things that you didn't tell her, you should have told her. But who says you can't get in control? Maybe it can be simultaneous. Maybe that's a motivation. It's your life. You live once. Don't you want to build a family, children, to give all that up? You weren't born an addict. So just like it was acquired, it could also be unacquired. I know it sounds easier said than done, but it could be done. Do not give up. If this program means anything, is to tell anyone listening to this, never give up. It may be difficult, it may be uphill, it may seem impossible to you. 
but the impossible has been conquered as well. I know individuals that I can share with you, give their, their number. We'll tell you how difficult they felt it was once and they thought it was impossible and they got through it. So people give each other strength and with God's help you could get through anything and come out stronger on the other side. Okay. So we have two things we want to cover still in this program and that is one is the Chassidus question and two is the sixth annual contest, the next level winners. The Chassidus question is a follow-up to last week. Was Abraham the first Jew? This is part two. I heard out of Fabrenga that even though there were no Yidin before Matantera, certain individuals possessed a nefesh alikis. Odam, Chava, Sheis, Neyach, Sheim, Ever, the Ovis, and Imois, the Shvotim, and Dina, Amram, Kohos, Yecheved, Moshe, Aaron, Miriam. The Mashpia didn't give a source for all this. Is it true? Thank you, Rab Simen. Okay. And this goes hand in hand with the question I read at the beginning about. Why is Avram identified as the first Jew? Due to him recognizing the Creator at a young age, when there were many performed that recognized God. Okay, so let me just briefly sum it up. I have a bigger question, I'll answer a question with a question. Here's the question It says in Tanya Pedig Beis that the Nefesh Hashem is Biyasral, the second soul in the Jew, after the animal soul in Pedig Allah, first chapter. Is, is the Nefesh Alekis, the Divine Soul. And goes on to bring proof from what? From Apostle Kimbereshis. That God blew his breath into the nostrils of Adam, of the Adama, right? and that made him into a living human being. From the Zohar, which means when you blow, especially with intensity, it comes from within you. So it wasn't just a superficial or outer dimension of the divine, but from the inner dimension of the divine, as he goes on to explain, like the Eden, a ben and an av, doesn't just come from an av's product, it's from the essence of the av, a moyecha av is the child. Same with an ashama from godliness. This is a postage that says on Odomarishin. Odomarishin is the father and the first and ancestor of all human beings. So every human being has therefore neshama shenasatabi neshama vayipach ba'apam nishmas chayim and neshama mitechi yusei nafachah. So why is Alter Rebbe say nefesh hashenis biyusrol? So the different answers given, but briefly, Darizal says that had and not eaten from the chetay tzadas from the eight tzadas, everyone would have been a eat. Essentially, Matan Teda didn't happen yet, but then it would happen. And everyone would, be this, would have this Nefesh kids. There would never be another type of nation. All nations would have been in. All children of Adam would have been a Chelekelekaz. Due to the Chetet Sadas, that now you have an animal soul and a divine soul, and those that have an animal soul, and they have also a divine spark. Remember, Umaseelim Osab, Chsidumaseelim, Alta Rebbe says, come from Klippus Negan, they have a divine element to them. But the concept of Umas Elam, nations of the world, like I spoke about last week, Goyim, nations, didn't really exist till Matan Teirah. Matan Teirah made Ata Vachatonim Mikol Amin, Uvano Vacharta, Mikol Am Beloshin. Till then, Goyim Mekerev Goy. Everybody was, Goy means a nation. There would have been nations, children of, children of Adam, but the Chetet Sadas ultimately created this split. And by Matan Teireh, the Jewish people 
um, were born, that concept. So in that sense, you can say, yes, that Odom had, of course, a chelikalikam in Malmamish, and never shall a kiss, but Yippur Ba'apav is said about Odom. And the same would be said about all the others that embraced godliness. What about those that didn't? What about the children of Odom that embraced Avedizodah? Or Shvichas Domim, or the other uh, Isurim of Sheva, they, they defied the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Neach. Remember, Tayag Mitzvahs were not given yet, but the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Neach were given to Adam already six, and the seventh was given to Noyach. So we know what happened. The Mabul came. That means they didn't act on this Vayipach Ba'apov. They also had it, but they didn't act on it. But since there was no formalization that happened at Mount Tater, you could say that at that point they basically didn't access and didn't act on the Nefeshulkis, but the world was a different reality. You could not speak about the world. When Alta Rebbe speaks about the two Nefeshulkis, he's speaking after Mount Tater. Before Mount Tater, the whole discussion is a different one because you don't have a Jewish nation and non-Jewish nation. So the whole Nefesh, Shein is Israel, you cannot speak about. You could speak about two souls and it's not yet formalized Essentially, it was up to human choice. So Adam, or the Ovis, they kept the Tera even before it was given at their volition. It was only Bris, as we spoke earlier, that was a mitzvah from above, mitzvah ve'esa, that God gave that mitzvah. And that's why it permeated the physical world. So even Adam and all the others, until Matan Tera, did not transform the material world, even though they had the Vayipach Ba'ap of Nishmaschayim. So a topic that is not really addressed much of what I said, some of it is based, I said, on the result. Some of it is my own explanation of it. If anybody has sources or another way of looking at it, by all means. But this is also based somewhat on the Rebbe's notes in, in the footnote in Lukut Tzichas Chelikut Gimel, page 230. Footnote on the Rambam, in Hilchus Seifil Cheshmite I've mentioned many times, which says, Loi Shevet Levi Bilvad, Elakol Ish Isha Shonod Veruche. And explains, Kol Ish V'ish, every person who dedicates his life, commits his life, is Harizeh Miskadish, Miskadish Kedish Kadashim. He becomes sanctified, holy of holies, like a Kohen Gadol. And the Rebbe explains it also includes Umas Elam. So he doesn't really talk about before Matan Tera and after Matan Tera, but combining all these different sources, this is somewhat of the picture of this topic. So now, why is Avram then recognized? We see the Maimur Bosalagani quotes the Shira Shirim Rabba, right? That what? Then it goes on to say that Adam through the Chetet Sadas, the Shechina was concealed, even though it was initially on earth, revealed before Eitz Sadas. The next generation, seven generations until, 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 until Avram that concealed more and more the Shechina, the Divine Presence. And Avram was the first one that reversed it. Why Avram? What about Noyach? What about Shem? What about all the other names that you mentioned? Because Avram formalized it. Avram not only recognized God, he went and defied the pagan world and went to publicize God. So he's considered the first to begin to formally recognize and therefore reveal the Divine in this world. Obviously, Noyach did it to some extent. Obviously, Shem and others did it as well. But not to the extent of Avram Avinu. Avram begins a new chapter, which would lead seven generations later to Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's why Avram is credited that he actually went and fought this battle to bring godliness, 
that God and the universe are really one. The divine is within all of existence. Okay. With this, let me conclude with... We've been doing the essays that were the third, sixth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest with the different eight tracks, eight different winners that we had this year. Four men in Hebrew essays in, in Israel, four men, four women. Well, actually more than eight winners. Those are eight. And then we had as well a, uh, three winners in English essays. That's 11. And 12, 12 winners. And a creative track that we began this year. So we've been going in order. I've covered the first and second place winners, both in English, in the creative, and in the Hebrew. So I want to do the third place winners on all, in all these different tracks. And we will now just... Let me just... Oh boy. What happens when your papers get all confused? Here we go. Okay, so we'll start with the English essay, third place, $1,000 winner, Shraga Crombie, Shliach Chabad House of Rutgers University. It was in Edison, New Jersey, age 38. And he spoke and he wrote about the Alter Rebbe's brilliant solution to the addict's dilemma. It's actually quite a brilliant essay where he takes the concept of addiction looks at it from the perspective of what scientists and, and psychologists and modern uh, thinkers speak about, and then addresses it from the Alter Rebbe's perspective of what the challenge is and how you can overcome the challenge. I believe this is a critical essay to be read and to be incorporated in the, in the, in the literature on this topic. Well worth reading. You can see this essay as well as the others and the creative in English at chassidahsupply.com. The third place Hebrew essay for men was Rabdovid Zalmanov, Key of Ukraine, and he wrote about how to choose the correct diet in Hebrew, Ketzer, Livcher, Diet, and Nechena. So the big issue of eating and dieting brings again from the different perspectives out there the secular world, and then explains it from chassidus, the conscientiousness and sensitivity, and actually an essay that I believe can help people struggling with the issue of a diet. Great essay as well. The Hebrew essays can be read at, can be read at diraloi.org, D-I-R-A-L-O, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. You can read the Hebrew essays. The third place women's Hebrew essay Hannah Berger, Migdala Emek student, Tam Hachaim, Taste of, of a Life, speaks about essentially burnout, how we get drained, drained and worn out from life's challenges. How do you deal with that? Excellent essay as well. We all have this challenge, looking and deeper into our neshama, into our resources from a chesidisha point of view, how to deal with the strains and anxieties and draining that drain us in our lives. And finally, this third place creative essay, S.D. Stern, Brooklyn, New York, 28, age 28. Topic is just a leaf, lyrics and music. Based on Hashgacha Pratis, that a leaf, even how it turns in the wind, is divine providence. Um, this uh, is a musical video with lyrics, very beautifully and very touchingly expressing this central theme. So there we go. Those are the third place essay winners, and essay and creative winners. Check it out. As I said, chassidusapply.com. You have the English and the creative. 
dirloy.org, you have the Hebrew. And with that, I want to bid and wish you all a very beautiful week, a growthful week, a divine week, to bring a lakus into this world, vayera alav Hashem, to cry for it in a good way, but then do what it takes to create that covenant, that connection with God, that chrisus bris, to dedicate our lives, to do everything possible to bring godliness wherever we go, to illuminate the world, to warm the world around us, and our environment with a lakus. And when there's your futsum and chutza, then is osimad amalka meshicha, the gula hamitis vashlema, when benigla kveda shem vado kol basar, all flesh, not just ene basar, not just the eyes of flesh, but flesh itself, will perceive godliness. This has been My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 329. Everyone have a very blessed and beautiful week. We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Looking forward to a very successful and gu'uladike year of ployas arena. This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidah Supplied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidahsupplied.com slash donate.